Hey everybody, welcome to episode 190 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from a very warm Austin, Texas, as we enter true summer days here in the great city of Austin. I hope everybody had a fun and safe holiday weekend as I'm recording this on July 6th. We've got a couple of topics that I want to cover today. First of all, I just wanted to give you as an intro the things I have learned in reading up personally about the coronavirus and things that I'm incorporating into my own life for what it's worth. And then secondly, our main topic, I want to talk about building back your running routine after time off. This is not an episode for those that are new to running. This is an episode for those that are experienced runners who, for whatever reason, may have fallen away for a period of time, whether that be because of a lack of motivation, because of a change in routine during the pandemic that caused you to fall away, or perhaps because of injury and you're trying to rebuild that base fitness so that you can then get into more rigorous training. We're going to talk about that process today. I've got seven tips for you to think about in building back for those that might fall into that camp. And I know there's a handful, probably more than a handful of you that have struggled with motivation during this pandemic and may have taken some time off and are wondering, how can I build back to fitness and do it in a safe way and stay healthy? I know Des Linden just tweeted this past week that she was coming back from a full month off herself and how that uh, that was always harder than you want to remember. So if you're in that position, you're not alone. The great Boston champion and multi-time Olympian Des Linden is with you on that as well. So let's talk about, first of all, the coronavirus. Just a quick update on what I've learned in researching COVID-19. And part of me is hesitant to share this information because I feel silly as a running coach sharing this information because I am not an expert by any means. So full disclaimer in front of this conversation. But I just want you to know, because I don't feel like a lot of information is being shared from our leaders in a way that's helpful, I want you to know what I've learned in becoming very deep in research on this virus. I don't rely on media reports. I rely on scientific studies. And if a media report references a scientific study, then I typically go and read the base research before I make my own conclusion. And obviously, there's a lot we still don't know about the virus. But the good news is that we've learned a lot over the last three months during this pandemic that I do think can help you shape your behavior and your activities to be more safe. If you remember back in March when everything got shut down initially, we didn't know how the virus transmitted. We were we were worried about surfaces. We were worried about potential aerosol transmission. We didn't know how it was passing from person to person. And that created a lot of uncertainty, which required a full lockdown at the time because we just weren't sure what was happening. The good news, again, as I mentioned, is that now we actually know a lot more. And while we don't have necessarily definitive information. The signs from a lot of different studies across the world and experts across the world 
are pointing to some pretty consistent parameters as to how transmission is happening, which can then give you much better guidelines on how to operate yourself to stay safe and to keep your family and loved ones safe. And so again, I'm just a running coach, coach, full disclaimer, but this is what I believe I've learned and what I have then used to shape my own actions as an individual and also shape actions about how I'm managing my business as someone who coaches runners in person every week. And so I share that with that disclaimer, you know, basically letting you know, hey, you can take this information or leave this information. But if you'd like perspective on how one person is managing it, then here it is. Here it is. And so what do we know? What are what do I believe I know about the virus now that I didn't know back in March? One is that the evidence seems to support and be pointing in the direction that the primary mode of transmission is through aerosol transmission from stationary or static exposure to an individual or individuals who has the virus. So you're getting the virus from the air and you're getting the virus because of sustained exposure to someone who has the virus. And so what that is telling us is that static environment, static indoor, particularly static indoor environments, stationary indoor environments are the most dangerous. Also stationary crowded environments are dangerous, whether they be indoor or outdoor. And those are the situations that we want to really be careful about and avoid. So that's going to point one, static indoor environments where you're exposed to the virus for some period of time. Some research, some research is saying that you need to be exposed for at least 15 minutes, but that number is still a little bit up in the air. So that's point one. Point two is that there is significant transmission happening from asymptomatic individuals. We don't know the exact percentages, but some studies would point to it potentially being as high as 50% of transmissions are happening because of asymptomatic individuals are passing it to other individuals. This is a little bit hard to track because, again, we're not able to test all individuals. So we're only testing those that have a reason to be tested or those that are symptomatic. So we don't know exact the percentage of symptomatic and asymptomatic transmission, but it's still coming significantly from asymptomatic individuals, which is part of the reason why this is so difficult to manage and track. And so for that reason, you have to kind of assume that everybody potentially has the virus. Third point is that masks do matter. The science has been a little bit all over the place on this since back dating back to March. And our guidance from the government and experts even has been all over the place in terms of mask wearing, but evidence is now pointing very firmly in the direction that masks do matter and that it's actually most important for those that might be transmitting the virus, those that have it, to be wearing a mask. Now, obviously, you want everybody wearing a mask because you don't know who might have it, but really, that you wearing a mask is about protecting other people around you so that if you're carrying it, they don't get it. There is some protection that comes from you wearing a mask if you're not sick and you're around somebody that's that is symptomatic but that protection is is solid and most most or is best when the symptomatic person has the mask on and if you're both wearing a mask even in an indoor environment then 
you know, transmission percentages they believe could be as low as 1.5%, even if one person is sick and you're exposed to them because of the mask. So transmission issues in static indoor environments, asymptomatic transmission is a problem. Masks are important to wear. And then the last point is that they no longer believe that surfaces are a significant source or potentially there may not be any transmission happening because of contaminated surfaces. So as always, washing your hands is still important, but you grabbing a doorknob going into a store is less of a concern now than it was back in March or potentially contamination from food or takeout bags or packaging. If you're getting food from a restaurant, that is less of a concern now than it was back in March. Now, additionally, one thing that they know is safe is dynamic outdoor environments. The virus is to is not believed to be stable in an outdoor environments. And dynamic outdoor environments are considered even safer, again, because you need more static exposure to viral load. And obviously, if you're in an outdoor environment where you have wind and heat and humidity and other conditions under which the virus is unstable, then you are more protected, particularly if you're moving around. So dynamic outdoor environments, extremely safe in the overall equation. So what does this mean? And for me as an individual, it starts with that question. What does this mean about my actions as an individual? The first thing it means for me is that I'm avoiding static indoor or static crowded environments where I'm exposed to people that are outside of my household. I've got a family of five and that's my crew and that's who I'm staying with. And really the only people that I'm exposed to in static indoor environments. Otherwise, I'm avoiding those situations. So that means no indoor bars. Obviously, in most places, that's been those have been closed down. No indoor restaurants, even if social distancing is being followed, because there are there is evidence to suggest that even in social distancing situations, there is there could be transmission inside a restaurant depending on how the ventilation is shown to be working. And there's one particular case of a restaurant who had who ended up having 80 transmissions from that restaurant, even though they were following social distancing rules because of the way the air was circulating inside the building. So avoiding static indoor environments, I'm avoiding static crowded environments. So I wouldn't go to an outdoor party or an outdoor situation where I'm not able to either be dynamic or have social distancing rules in place. So that's step one. Step two is in any situation where I have to go indoors and be exposed to people that are not in my household, then that situation, I will obviously be wearing a mask because masks matter. And I will limit my time in those situations and or make my movement dynamic in those situations. So that means that going into a grocery store is okay because you're kind of constantly moving around and not exposed to any one person or space consistently or for long enough for the viral load to transmit. And also, if I have to do something like pick up takeout at a restaurant, which we've been doing periodically, then I will pop in, pop out, be there for usually no more than a minute, sometimes even less, grab my food, go head back home and eat it. So 
those are critical things is if you do have to go into indoor environments, be exposed to people that are not in your household, then, then wear a mask and try to keep that situation dynamic or, and, or where you have full social distancing in place with a mask on. Then lastly, if I'm exposing myself to anybody at all that's outside my household, then I'm doing it outdoors in a dynamic environment or in an environment where we can have social distancing practices in play. So for me, that means I'm still currently running in groups with Rogue, but we're keeping those groups small. We're meeting outside and we're keeping reasonable spacing and we're always in movement. We're always dynamic on these routes so that we're not able to be in one static situation for too long and stay in that same viral load situation. And also, if we do have exposure to people outside of our household, then I'm doing that outside. We've had a couple of get-togethers in our backyard where we've had a handful of friends, a few friends over, and we maintain social distancing and we're able to interact in a way that I feel was safe because it was outside, it was distanced, and we were very much following the guidelines that I've just described to get that community and connection periodically from those outside of my household. I think as a part of that one area to be cautious and to potentially be a little bit wary is wary is with your extended family. There have been several documented cases of super spreader events with family get-togethers. There was a family reunion in South Texas close to here where I think it was 16 individuals from the same family extended family group came down with the virus. There was a a surprise birthday party in Dallas where 18 family members, including two grandparents, came down with the virus. And both those grandparents are now in the ICU. And I think sometimes we let our guard down with, with people that are close to us in our extended family because we know them. And yet we still want to see them. I would just encourage you, if you do see them, to see them in an environment that's outdoors with distancing practices in place so that you can see them and have that connection, but do it safely. So again, those are the rules, quote unquote rules, that my research is pointing to in order to avoid getting the virus while still trying to resume as many normal life things as I can. And we're not going to be back to normal or anywhere close to that until we get a vaccine or until we get such rapid testing capability that anybody at any time could quickly know whether or not they have the virus. And that will come, but probably not until sometime in 2021. And until then, I believe that we need to all act safely and responsibly, but still be able to do things that are normal so that we don't feel this need to do things that aren't safe, like go inside of a restaurant or go inside of a bar. And so based on my research and reading, that's those things that I just mentioned, those are those are the rules for how I'm operating to try to keep me safe, keep my family safe. Again, you may choose to operate differently and that's your prerogative, but I just wanted to give you the information that I've found and what I'm operating under because that might be helpful to creating your own framework for operating because I know that right now a lot of us are looking for that and we're not necessarily getting it from leadership at really any level. So that's what I've learned. That's how I'm operating. Take it or leave it. But hopefully that helped some of you 
perhaps learn a little bit about what we know about the virus and maybe shape your own actions. But I do think we all have to, at this point, take personal responsibility, think about the risk level of each thing that we do outside of our household and try to be as responsible as we can to limit these transmissions so that we don't see the surges like we're seeing across the country now. So for whatever that was worth, that is the quick update on Chris as an epidemiologist. And again, it's scary to me to to be the one having to give information like that because again, I'm not an expert and I fully admit that, but I am an analytical person who's very deep in reading the base scientific research. And again, take that for what it is, but based on my reading of the research and breaking it down, those are the parameters that I'm seeing about the virus and how it affects my own personal actions and my own business. So hopefully that's helpful to you. All right, so that's an intro on the coronavirus. Please be safe out there, all of you, and yes, do wear a mask. Let's talk about building back. This is a probably topic that's relevant for many of you. I know that the pandemic has done a wide range of things to our motivation in terms of getting out there to get our runs in. And some people have gone to one extreme or the other. I've got some people in my group that have using this, used this as an opportunity to get even more mileage in than they have previously. And I've had some that have struggled to stay motivated without having a race on the calendar or perhaps with the stress and other upheaval that might be happening in their lives because of this situation. And I fully understand both things. There are, this is not, this is not me throwing stones. This is me just trying to be helpful and hopefully help those that have been away from it a little bit and who need to build back to get you back on track. And this is again, more focused on those that are experienced runners that are building back to reform their base. Then this is really targeted towards those new runners. Cause I think those are completely different conversations. There's certain parts that are the same, but it's really different if you have that experience. So I've got seven tips for you on how to build back and do it in a way that's not only safe, but that hopefully keeps you motivated and keeps that momentum going for the long haul. So I'm going to walk through these seven things. Step number one, which you will find is no surprise to me, or tip number one, which you'll find is no surprise coming from me and something I, I stress a lot on this podcast and we talked about it in the last podcast with Lisa. It's this idea that you have to know your purpose and ideally as a part of that, set a goal. You know, just starting running without having a, a plan, a goal, a connection to your why is going to be difficult. And so it's important to recognize that and make sure you're spending that time up front understanding why this time you're doing it. And I know right now it's hard perhaps to find that because we don't have races on the calendar or we're not sure if races will happen or we don't know when the next race, big race will happen. And so you might have to be creative about what that looks like for you. But I would ask you to one, reflect on why you run. First of all, connect back to that. And that's a question that extends well beyond races or specific time goals. But why do you run? Why do you enjoy the activity of getting out and moving through space? So answer that question for yourself first. And then secondly, set a goal. 
And in this case, it may or may not be a goal that's associated with the race or associated with a certain time. It could be. You could say, hey, I want to go run a virtual 5K for myself in three months that might take a shot at getting a PR, but it may not because, again, of the uncertainty of the races that are out there. And so in absence of having a an outcome goal, I would encourage you to set a process-oriented goal. And that could look a lot of different ways. Initially, it might look as look to be something that's really simple. It could just be about running a certain number of days for this next month. You know, we're still early in July, so July could be the the month that you say over the next three weeks in July, I want to run eighteen times. You know, six days a week, eighteen times. It could be fifteen. It could be any number in there, but you could just set a process goal. It could be that in three months' time, you want to be hitting a mileage level that you've never achieved before, obviously by building that back gradually, which we'll talk about in a second. But I would encourage you, in absence of having an outcome goal, to set a process goal. could be about getting runs in. could be about total mileage. could be about checking the box on your routine, which would include not just running, but also potentially strength work. So... Think about what that might be and give yourself a target so that you have a reason to get out there, so that you have some accountability to know whether or not you're on track. And I would just encourage you to dig into that process side of goal setting to figure out what that target might be. So the first most obvious point, connect back to your purpose and set a goal, potentially a process goal. Second point here is I want you to know what you're in for. Second point, know what you're in for. And this is, I think, where I can go back to thinking, and you've done this before, but think about previous times when you've gotten back into running after a little bit of a time time off for whatever reason. Again, could be just lack of motivation, could be coming back from injury. And you'll remember that when you did that process, it wasn't fun. It wasn't fun. It sucked for a period of time. And so after figuring out your purpose, after thinking about your goal, then be realistic and remind yourself that this is going to be difficult, that it's going to be hard, that it's going to suck initially. And it's going to suck potentially for four to six weeks of just getting out there and grinding, especially with the temperatures and the conditions that you might face in building back right now. It's just going to be difficult. And, you know, for me in running and in life, it's often about setting expectations. If I know what I'm in for, it's a little bit easier to face it. And so I'm just calling a spade a spade here. And I'm telling you, this is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. These early runs are going to suck going to feel like you lost everything. You're going to think that you'll never be back to the fitness that you once had. All of those feelings are going to come at you. You're going to think there's no way in the world I'll ever run another PR based on how I feel in these early runs coming back. And that's okay. That is a part of the process. So recognize it up front and potentially think about a mantra, 
a motto, a phrase that you can go to when those dark thoughts come that might allow you to dig out of it. I can tell you that for me, in those moments, it's important to focus longer term. That's, again, this is for me personally. When I'm in that early grind coming back and I I can remember coming back from a stress fracture in 2016 that I got in Boston and I ended up taking eight full weeks off after that stress fracture to allow it to fully heal before I started to come back. And then again, you know, it's going to be four to six weeks at least before you start to feel strong again. And I remember for me, it was all about thinking about long-term goals. And I was thinking about those building blocks that I was laying in those four to six weeks coming back were going to set me up for PRs that were to come and I had at that point an 18-month plan to build back that would allow me to hopefully PR in the marathon again at the end of that 18 months in Houston in 2018. And ultimately, I actually did do that. So looking back, the prophecy was fulfilled. I followed through on the plan, ended up getting a marathon PR 18 months later. But The early part of that was grinding through those early runs that sucked, that didn't feel good, that made me doubt anything and everything about it, about running and whether or not I could get back to the fitness I had once earned. But for me, thinking about that long-term goal of knowing that I had to get through the grind in order to get to the big goal down the road, that helps me. For some people, I know that that's not helpful. Because you might think, especially now and with all the uncertainty out there about races and we don't know when races will even come back, that may not be helpful. And you may need to be thinking about something more short term. For you, it may actually be about being very much in the present and saying, hey, you know what? Let's just focus on today's run. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about next week. Don't worry about two months from now. Let's just get through today's run. And if I can check the box on today's run, then... That will build momentum for tomorrow's run. And I'll worry about tomorrow when it gets here. And so those are two completely divergent perspectives on how to deal with this idea that it's just going to suck for four to six weeks. But I think both are important. Both could be used potentially simultaneously because sometimes it is just about focusing on the next step. And sometimes it's about keeping the big goal in mind and both can work together to keep you moving forward one day at a time. But just think about what that means for you. Think about what you're going to tell yourself in those dark moments. Think about what you're going to tell yourself when you're just don't want to get out there on that next day because the previous day sucked so much. Have a plan, have a strategy for for giving yourself a pep talk in those moments because I promise you they will come and tell you at some point it'll click for you and then and then you'll forget as 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 quickly as those rough runs came and seemed like all that would ever happen to you you'll forget them again when that fitness rolls back around so point 1 know your purpose set a goal point 2 know what you're in for be prepared for the slog to come because it will take four to six weeks of just frankly sucking before you get through that 
and then suddenly that fitness starts to emerge, that light at the end of the tunnel appears. So that's tip number two, and we haven't even started running yet. Third tip is establish your routine now. Establish your routine now. And I'm not necessarily talking about what you're going to do in week one, because we'll talk about building up days and distance. But you want to be thinking about, okay, what will my routine look like in four to six weeks when my routine is fully baked? And that's going to mean what days am I running? How do those days fit together? And in other words, what day am I doing my long run? What day am I doing my speed work? When's my medium long run? How do my recovery runs fit together? So build that target plan. And as a part of that, think about the strength program as a part of it as well. If you're going to be building strength in, where does that fit ideally? Typically, I recommend two days of strength of strength a week. So how does the strength fit with the running? Doesn't mean that you're going to do it all at once to start out, but you do want to know what you're shooting for, what your target is, what your plan is once you're fully back into your routine. So think about plan and establish that routine now. This also doesn't mean that it won't change because that happens. Life changes, especially now. I know our schedules are all perhaps in upheaval. And for many of you parents out there might be in upheaval again in a few months once school starts back or a month and a half here in Texas. But think about what that routine is going to be. And then you want to establish it or begin to establish it and lay the foundation for establishing it really from the first week. Sometimes people ask me, well, should I start running first and then add strength? And what I would tell you is that you want to actually do the strength and the running together, start them together because both are going to suck initially. You might as well have them suck together. And by doing that strength, you're going to actually be able to better be more resilient on the running as you build. Again, that's not to say that you're going to do it all 100% right away. We'll talk about building up to that. But I do think if you are reestablishing a routine and if strength is, strength is going to be a part of it, then you want to incorporate that strength work from step one, from the first week back. So you'll be doing running that first week. You'll also be doing strength. And again, not necessarily all at once, not necessarily full throttle, but you'll, ramping, you'll be ramping up the two things together because if you ramp the two together, then that will allow you to not only adapt to the load that will come, but also be strong throughout that load and essentially have, you know, that initial rip the bandaid off feeling of kind of both things sucking, get that out of the way together all at once so that when you do start to feel good and strong, you're already kind of synced up with that routine. So tip number three establish that routine, know what the target is from the beginning and build your strength and your running simultaneously if you plan to do strength so that you can incorporate that in your routine from the beginning. Point four, build days first, then build distance. Build days first, then build distance. So you want to add days to your routine before 
you build distance on those days. Why is that important? It's important because motion is lotion, movement equals blood flow equals healing. And so the sooner you're actually active more days per week, that will actually grease the wheel, so to speak, that will provide the lotion for the motion that will help you sustain your routine as you go. Plus, it's going to give you smaller doses of activity throughout the week that are more sustainable than if you just jump straight into a six or seven mile run. So step four, build days first, then distance. And that applies to both strength and to running. Build days first, then distance. What does that look like? And it's going to, again, depend on what your plan is, what your routine is, what your target is. But for many people who have a history of running consistent mileage, then I like to start them with three days a week. Three days a week of running, one day a week of strength in that first week. So three days a week, basically running every other day, some distance that's very manageable for you. For some of you, that could be three or four miles. For some of you, it might be five or six, depending on your history. But just start with establishing that routine first with a certain number of days and then keep those days where they are and then in terms of distance and then build more days into the routine until you get to your target number of days. And then once you get to that target, you can start to build distance as you go. And so you might, for example, do three days in the first week of running, four days in the second week, five days in the third week, six days in the fourth week so that you get that full complement of days in if you're targeting six or if you're targeting five, that's okay to build to that first before you start adding distance. So you might end up doing week one as three days of four to five miles. Week two, four days of four to five miles. Week three, five days of four to five miles. And let's say you're tapping out at five, five days a week of running. Then once you get to that point, once you have that routine established, then you can start to build distance on those days. Same thing with the strength. Start with one day a week of strength. I probably wouldn't, during this rebuild, go more than two. But you can, maybe in the third week, add a second day. So add a second day in week three. And so just as one example, maybe you do three running days, one strength day in week one, then it's four and one in week two, then it's five and two in week three. Again, keeping the load the same on all of those days. And then once you get through those three weeks, you can start to add distance. And we'll talk about adding distance here in a second. But I think this is absolutely critical. Build days first until you establish those routines, the number of days you're going to be working out, the number of days you're going to be doing strength, the number of days you're going to be running, and then you can start to add volume on those days. That I have found as a coach is the safest way to do it. Tip number five. And some people would call this the 10% rule. I kind of like to think of it more as the five mile a week rule because percentages sometimes end up being really skewed depending on what your target is. And what I found in building back running is that by building about five miles a week, that tends to be about right for an experienced runner. 
And that's going to be a little bit bigger percentage early on, a little bit lower percentage later, depending on how many miles you're building to. But I've found that kind of four to five miles a week increasing tends to be about right. So I like to do the four to five mile a week rule instead of the 10% rule. But both concepts are the same. Essentially, you don't want to build too much volume at one time or too much load from a strength perspective at one time. So don't build by more than four to five miles per week as you rebuild those mileage or those miles. So just going back to that example, if you're doing three runs of five miles a week in week one, four four runs of five miles a week in week two, that's a five mile build. You're up to 20. Five runs of five miles a week, that's 25. You're up to 25 miles a week after five. And then from there, you can start to build distance on those days if you're targeting a five-day week. And just don't add more than four to five miles per week as you start to add distance on those days. And typically what I will do, once you get to that target number of days per week is build your long run and your medium long runs first, keeping those recovery days shorter and easier. And then once you get those runs to be where they need to be, then you can start to build other other days to get to whatever target mileage you might be achieving. So again, not a 10% rule, but a five mile a week rule. Don't build by more than five miles a week as you build back in order to build back safely. Now, one question that comes up sometimes in this is, can I build in consecutive weeks? And that's going to depend a little bit on you as a person and your experience at whatever mileage level you might be building to. And so this is where there's a little bit of nuance that comes in. And perhaps if you have a coach, you can consult with them, or you might just want to reflect on what your body typically has handled in the past. Because some people can build consistently five miles a week all the way until they get back to whatever target mileage they might achieve. And I will say as someone personally who's been doing this for 20 years, typically when I build back mileage, I'm able to do that. As long as I'm keeping the easy, running easy, and I'm balancing my overall load well enough. But for some of you, with perhaps less experience, if you did that, it might end up causing problems. And in those cases, I might consider a three-week cycle where you're doing two weeks of building, followed by a hold week where you hold the mileage for a week and allow your body to assimilate and essentially consolidate that fitness before you start building again. So it's a two week up, one hold where you stay the same mileage before you start building again. Or you could even do it with a two week hold where you go two weeks up, two week hold, and then build. That cadence is going to depend a little bit on both your experience as a runner, but also perhaps how you feel as you build. So it's highly important to listen to your body and if you feel like you've overdone it at any point, Perhaps instead of building for another week, just hold for a week, consolidate some of that fitness, make sure that routine sticks before you take that next step. So that's tip number five, the five mile a week rule. Tip number six is you need to be incredibly patient with speed work. Be incredibly patient with speed work. And typically I'm going to say, give yourself at least four weeks before you incorporate 
any traditional hard speed work into your routine. So give yourself at least four weeks of just building base mileage, running easy, and wait to build back in those quality workouts. Because if you build both distance and add too much speed at once, that's a recipe for breaking yourself. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't add a little bit of speed development in those first four weeks because I believe that's critical to being able to prepare yourself and prime yourself for speed work to come. But that should look very, very simple and straightforward and be very, very, very light. And so what is a light bit of speed development work look like in those early weeks? That means just doing potentially weekly strides four to up to eight as you build strides once a week in those early weeks just to give yourself a little bit of speed work and tap into those fast twitch muscles to prime them for the work to come. You could also do some really light fart licks if you prefer that to strides where you might be doing some 30 second pickups periodically in one run a week, maybe even some one minute pickups, some really light fart licks in those first four weeks that are all essentially effort-based that don't have any specific outcomes associated with them, but are just designed to allow the speed work or your body to prepare itself and be primed for the speed work that will come. The other part of that equation, the other part of being patient with your speed work is being really patient with your paces when you do return to your speed work after about four weeks. And in those cases, I want you to not be so rigid and think that you have to go back to the paces you used to run. You want to ease back into it by slowing down to start and perhaps choosing a pace range or workout paces that might be for marathoners, just by way of an example, that might be associated with 10 to 15 minutes slower in terms of total marathon time than you were prior to that injury or that time off. So kind of knock yourself back a couple of pace groups, so to speak, while you're returning to workouts after those four weeks so that you can allow your body to adapt to that load and then build safely into that speed work and then allow the new paces to kind of come to you and build back to you as you feel more comfortable versus forcing it and saying, hey, these are the paces I did before. I'm going to go right back to those because that's going to be a recipe for injury, probably also a recipe for disappointment as you end up burying yourself perhaps a little bit on some of those workouts. So tip number six, stay patient with your speed work. Give yourself four weeks of just light speed development work with strides and light fartlicks. And then when you do return to speed work after four weeks or so, then knock yourself back a couple of pace groups and rebuild the paces gradually so that you don't overdo it. So that was point number six. Point number seven, and we're really only going to take you to the time at which things start to click or maybe you're primed and ready to then begin a race-specific training build, which should take anywhere from four to six weeks. But wait until things start to click. Click, put that in air quotes, until you really start to resume race-specific training again. You want to get to that point where you not only see the light at the end of the tunnel, but suddenly you forget the darkness behind you. You want to get to that point where you're thinking, man, I can't believe it was ever hard to kind of build back because I feel good now. 
And at some point, it's going to click. It might take four weeks. Oftentimes in the summer months when it's warm, it takes more like six weeks where suddenly you have your groove back and suddenly you forgot <laughs> the toils that it took you to get that groove back. And that's the point at which it's time to, or it can be time to switch over into a more rigorous or race-specific training block or transition into some phase where you might be working on something beyond just building that foundation again. And for some of you, it might take more than six weeks, could take eight weeks, potentially depending on the timing of your layoff, could take 10. But be patient with yourself. Don't rush getting back to really hard, rigorous training again, because if you do that, it's only going to not only cause potential for injury, but also potentially risk the 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 future of what you can accomplish. And I can tell you that also when I came back from that stress fracture in 2016, gave myself eight weeks off, then started rebuilding and was initially really patient with that rebuild. But then I started to bump up against training with my teammates who were all racing in the fall and I wanted to be out there working out with them. And so I got greedy. I remember in that return to training and, and the thing you forget whether you're training, returning to training because of injury or because of just a layoff for motivation reasons, you forget that every part of your body that you're using to run has to readapt to the training loads. Not just if you're injured, not just that injured body part, but everything that you're, you're, you're putting load on and you forget that. And so in that case, I forgot that. I was focused on rehabbing my, the, the injury that I had but I forgot that every other part of my body was also readapting to the load. And so I got greedy, rushed back too fast, ended up having a few injuries that fall in other parts of my body because I just wasn't giving myself enough patience to wait for it to fully click before I really amped things up and really kind of got back to quote unquote normal training. And so tip seven here, I wish I could give you a really specific date you know, once you're running five weeks and six days, then suddenly you're going to have that magic moment where suddenly everything feels good and normal again. I can't give you that because it's going to vary in time for all of you, depending on how things go in your comeback. But there will be a point, I promise, where suddenly it feels easy again, where things click, where, as I said, you forget the dark days behind you and it only looks rosy and you're well into the light coming out of that dark tunnel of returning to training. And then and only then should you start to press and think about building into something more, whether that be a race-specific training block or maybe a training block where you're working on a certain weakness but anything that looks kind of like normal training, you want to wait and be patient for that moment where things start to click. Because if you if you go too soon, if you try to get back to full loads, and by full loads, I mean all your running plus workouts at those old paces, plus you know all the other elements that come with a heavy-duty training block. If you do that too soon, you risk injury, but you also risk potentially kind of snapping again, losing motivation again burying yourself in workouts that might be hard to come back from and potentially risking all of the things you've done to patiently establish this new foundation. So wait till it clicks. 
be patient before you switch gears into that next race specific or that next more rigorous training block. So there you go. Those are my seven tips for building back from time off. One, think about purpose, set a goal associated with that to give you a target. Two, know what you're in for. Know that it's going to be hard for four to six weeks coming back and be prepared for how you're going to deal with that as you have those ups and downs. Three, establish your routine. Know what that's going to look like so that you can build to it. Four, build your days first, then build your distance. Five, the five mile per week rule. Don't build by more than five miles a week as you come back. Six, be super patient with your speed work. Give yourself at least four weeks of more light speed development work like strides and light fartleks before you jump back into more rigorous speed work. And then when you do, kick it back to slower paces initially so that you can adapt to that load when it does come. And seven, wait till everything starts to click. Wait till you feel good again. Wait till you're smiling after a run because it feels effortless again before you then click into that next rigorous training block. Those are my seven tips. There are probably others. If you have them, I would love to hear your experiences in building back. You can email me, chris at roguerunning.com. I am here to hopefully encourage you. For those that have struggled perhaps through the pandemic, it's time to get going again. Think about these tips and then just start taking one step at a time. Because I promise you, if you focus on those short, small goals, just like Lisa talked about last week, then that will build momentum that will eventually snowball into a full-blown, excited training block again. So hopefully that's your experience, but we're here in solidarity with you as you build back. And I'm excited to potentially hear from some of you that hopefully this was a motivating podcast for you to get started again. You can always email me with questions at chris at roguerunning.com or with success stories because I do get those quite often as well. So with that, I will wrap this episode 190. Thanks to all of you, as always, for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Rogue Running, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. You can follow me on Instagram at Rogue Chris or on Twitter at Chris McClung. Until next time, get running. We'll talk to you soon.